0: Hello there, Typology friends. Welcome to this week's episode, and I'm promising you right now, it's a great one. Before we jump into it, though, I want to remind you that Typology has launched a Patreon campaign. If you're not familiar with it, Patreon is a way for you to support content you love, like Typology, on a monthly basis. For as little as a dollar a month, you can partner with us to help us cover the costs of Stuff like equipment upgrades or studio time, post-production editing, the fees that we have to pay for licensing music, and quite frankly, the 20 to 25 man hours per week that it takes us to produce each episode of Typology. All you have to do is go to www.patreon.com forward slash typology. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash typology t-y-p-o-l-o-g-y and select the level at which you want to support this show and you will not only receive our undying love and gratitude you also will get a bunch of great bonus content as well and i'm telling you even one dollar per month is a huge help so now it's time for our show I first encountered the Enneagram when I was a graduate student at a conservative seminary. While on a weekend retreat, I came across a copy of Father Richard Rohr's book, Discovering the Enneagram, an Ancient Tool for a New Spiritual Journey. In that book, Richard describes the traits and underlying compulsions that drive each of the Enneagram's nine basic personality types, based on my life experience and what I'd learned in my training to become a counselor. Rohr's descriptions of the types blew my mind. They were uncannily accurate. I felt sure I had stumbled on an amazing resource, not only for Christians, but for all people. Little did I know that 25 years later, Richard and I would be friends, and the Enneagram would become the central focus of my work. Richard is a Franciscan priest of the New Mexico province, and he's founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Richard is the author of Everything Belongs, Adam's Return, The Naked Now, Breathing Underwater, the amazing book Falling Upward, and Immortal Diamond, and he's our guest today. So, let's get to it.
1: Father Richard, welcome to Typology. An honor to be with you. Thank you. I hope I can say something that's worth hearing.
0: Well, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you'll have plenty to say for our folks that will be incredibly enriching for them and for me as well. So I, um, I'm not sure if you remember this, but the last time I heard you teach the Enneagram, and I've heard you teach three times, once in Assisi when we were there together, yeah. once in Albuquerque, and then another time. The last, the most memorable for me was you and I spoke at the same conference in the Bahamas.
1: Oh, yes. When M.T. Wright was there. Uh-huh. Yep.
0: And you and uh, me and Brennan Manning, uh, yeah. re- rest his soul. And uh, about seven or eight people, we got caught in that hurricane inside a house.
1: That's right. I didn't get away for four days. That's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was something, man. I um, I have so many questions for you because in, in so many ways, you are the preeminent voice and pioneer of the Enneagram, both in the world of the church and the world of the of faith communities around the world, but also well beyond that. And um, so I've got so many questions. I don't know where to start. So I'll just jump in with how are you? first introduced to the Enneagram.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that's the only reason I became well-known, because I was introduced to it so early. So um, you know some of the history, how these Jesuits brought it back from Chile, the Eureka Institute, where they were down there studying in 1972. They came back, and as I was told, they taught it to a larger circle of Jesuits in their house in Berkeley. And it just so happened, one of that larger circle, I don't know if it was eight or nine, happened to be my spiritual director in Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, I was going to him in 1973, and I could see he was amazingly insightful about me. Uh, I mean, I almost felt he was reading my soul. And uh, so eventually I asked him, how do you come to such clarity so quickly? And he says, well, I'm going to tell you something that uh, I've just learned myself. And since I'm training you to be a spiritual director, uh, I, uh, let me share it with you. His name was Father Jim O'Brien. He's now deceased. Really holy, healthy human being. And I remember when uh, must have been, oh, the second time we were into it, I was able to see without him telling me that I was a one. And I always say it was like a veil fell. I drove back to the Franciscan house like a deer caught in the headlights. I, oh, my God, this is so obvious. It's just a whole bunch of things fell in place. But I never had that frame. And the frame was just so clarifying. And here I am, what, 40, 50 years later, and I, I'm still finding how true it is. But that's how I first learned it. And so, you know, those years until the mid-80s and the first books came out and Helen Palmers came out, we all kept to the code. The code was this was only to be taught from spiritual director to spiritual director because if it was taught to the masses, to the hoi polloi, as it were, the fear was it would become trivialized, it would become cheapened, a psychological game. And in many ways that happened but we did keep, most of us kept the secret as it were. And then in the mid 80s, when uh, Helen came out with her wonderful book, I said, okay, the secret's out. So I taught it right here in Albuquerque in a parish hall, right? I'm looking at it now across the parking lot and it was recorded. So for a lot of people, I was the first living voice. I, I didn't write about it. I made a Something like 10-set tape, but still we had cassette tapes. I, I had it. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, so many people learned it from that. And this is not false humility, it re- it's just true. I go to anagram conferences and I'm given undue deference and respect, not because I teach it better, I really don't, but because a lot of people learned it from me un- initially. And I think many people like yourself have far perfected the craft 40 years later. But uh, if they're going to give me this deference, then I'll try to use it for good. good. Thank you.
0: So you're a, a one on the Enneagram. And you, you mentioned you're, you were driving home feeling yeah. exposed. and uh, Yeah, good work. Right. And, and so you know lots of our folks are new to the enneagram just discovering uh their type their dominant type if you will and um i, I my hunch is is that they feel uh, a need or feel compelled to berate themselves or uh and so i'm wondering how did you break loose from the the sort of the shackles of uh of of lacking self compassion on the journey with the enneagram
1: and you're saying that to the right person because we ones tend to be very hard on ourselves, so I, I doubted everything for the next ten years. It wasn't a debilitating doubt. I would like to think it, it was an enlightening doubt, but it was still a, oh God, Richard, you're a phony. <laughs> and you know, especially since people thought I was this spiritual master and, and then I would see how many of the good things that I supposedly did. I did for very mixed motives at best. So I just had my face shoved into my shadow self. But again, by the reason of having good parents and good Franciscan spirituality, I think I was protected from any debilitating self hatred, but it still rears its ugly head to this day. Mm. You know, it's one of the characteristics of a one. We're very hard on ourselves. And as a result, I'm sorry to say, we can be very hard on other people. Mm-hmm. The only way we get out of that trap is to stop nagging ourselves all the time. You know. So uh, the Enneagram, for me, has been a tool of compassion more than anything else. Not just compassion toward myself, but I can honestly say, I know as a one, we're judgmental by nature. I, I'm just... Not nearly, are hardly judgmental. Of course, I'm almost 75 now, and I've had 50 years to work on this. But I just catch it. I catch it so quickly now, almost immediately, that you know, it, as Thomas Aquinas said, uh, "Evil depends upon disguise. Hmm. Disguise itself is good." And so my evil, the disguise, was torn away. What was I was called zealous, hardworking, I was a little boy scout, you know, yes, sir, yes, father, Uh, just eager to please the authorities, got me through the seminary without any black balls, as they used to call them, and uh, little did I think, those very things that I was being promoted for, and admired for, were the things that were souring my stomach, if I can put it that way. Hmm. You know, uh, it's uh, it's a great insight. As I said on those very early tapes, it works for you, your Enneagram compulsion, usually through your 20s. You know, it gets you rewarded. It gets you promotions. It's what people think makes you special. And usually if you're on schedule, it begins in the 30s, but full-blown by the 40s. I don't want to be too... Uh, neat about those chronological times, but it starts showing its ugly head that it, the very thing people love you for is killing you from the inside.
0: That's a tremendously important insight. And I, I think uh, what maybe one question I have for you is there is a really a tidal wave culturally and in the church of uh, just a tidal wave of interest Yeah, in personality, identity, and uh, uh, and I'm just curious as to what you think accounts for it.
1: Well, of course, now I'm going to talk like a priest, but I, I still am going to do it because I think it has validity. I think Christianity in particular, I can't critique the other world religions, but has, has not done a good job at all of giving Christian people their identity. It told us we earned it by good behavior. And um, I call it carrot-on-the-stick theology, which is now catching up with Western Christianity, every denomination. There's no exceptions, as far as I can find. We didn't point people to their image and likeness of God, which was ontological, metaphysical. Uh, It was grounded. But we gave them the impression they sort of earned a holy identity Instead of they were given from the very beginning. And that gave great fragility to the Western identity. You're constantly striving to prove yourself, to assert yourself, to define yourself. Now, up to now, and I mean till the 60s, we were largely able to do that through our group identity. I didn't know who I was, but I knew. Catholics were the one holy Catholic apostolic church and we were the true mother church and all the rest of you were heretics, well that works and every every historical group had its same storyline, you know, I don't know who I am but I know I'm an Anglican or I know I'm a Methodist or I know I'm a Mennonite well that then started to fall apart the corporate identities we started seeing their shadow too, that only began in the 60s to know we didn't critique things socially before the 60s so we don't know our individual imago dei which gives us an ontological metaphysical foundation of dignity that cannot be given to us and cannot be taken away from us and absolutely levels the playing field of humanity distinctions like gay and straight black and white Catholic and Protestant American and Canadian or whatever, just they don't mean anything. (laughs) And in my opinion, this is our last grasp of trying to make those social identities mean something. And for me, again, I admit I'm talking like a religious person, but I think the only way out is the proclamation of the true gospel, which says that everything created Human, animal, material is created in the image and likeness of a Trinitarian and loving God. And uh, that settles almost every social question, (laughs) if we believed it Mm -hmm. and lived out of it, uh, every social question we're facing. And this ability to pit one group against another, which Washington seems to be so good at these days, it just doesn't work anymore because people have a solid foundation. And their foundation isn't, I'm not trying to pick on this group, but I picked on Catholics. So, you know, not because I'm a Baptist from Alabama. If that's all I have to hold on to, then I'm going to hold on to it with a vengeance. And being a Baptist from Alabama becomes your identity instead of being a universal child of God. Mm. In union with all the other children of God. So we are, as you said, a tidal wave of obsession with identity politics, uh, and all I can say is something like the anagram can also be a game. If it isn't leading you to this final discovery of what Thomas Merton called your true self hidden with Christ in God. It's Christian language. You do not have to use Christian language. But I, I read the Bhagavad Gita. And I see the Hindus were talking about this 2,000 years before Christ. Uh, That there's there's a self that is previous to this personality thing here. Uh, There's a self that's bigger and more solid, and most of all, that's why Carl Jung used a big S. It's a shared self. (laughs) It isn't an autonomous, independent, eccentric. Identity advertising itself is special. I, once, once you find your absolute specialness, your absolute dignity, you don't have to waste a lot of time trying to assert it yourself. Mm. And as critical as I am of organized religion, I'm very publicly critical. I still think healthy religion, healthy, I don't know how much we have, but healthy religion is the only way to discover the substantially universal self.
0: Mm. So I am, uh, as you know, I'm Thomas Merton is my hero. And whenever I start to doubt, uh, you know, when my faith feels like it's on shaky foundations, I go back and I read Merton, that four with a five, right? That head and heart, you know, when you try to cover up one, he gets you at the other, and you cover up that one, he gets you at the other, right? Very good. Um, so... I remember sitting in St. Catherine's of Siena Church. I was 28 years old, and uh, I was reading for the first time New Seeds of Contemplation.
1: Oh, that's the creme de la creme.
0: Yes, sir. And I, I, to this day, remember hitting chapter 5, where he's talking about how the horses give glory to God by just simply being horses, and the trees give glory to God simply by being trees, and weeping with just, oh my gosh, what an illumination of... My yes. faith, you know. So, Richard, I want to discuss this incredibly important topic of the enneagram and the true self and the false self. So, you speak so eloquently about the true self and false self. You've written about it in Falling Upward. You've got uh, actually a whole book dedicated to the the, the uh, immortal diamond, uh, which I loved. And I think it's a for particularly for Protestants, it's a new idea. You know uh, the The Catholic voice, of course, is now finally breaking through to to Protestants in wonderful ways, but I, I would love it if you would explain to people what the false self is and the true self and what on earth the Enneagram has to do with it.
1: Let me start with your second question. Here's one reason I have found the Enneagram so helpful in retreat work and spiritual direction work. It so exposes the false self that If you can't find the true self, you you just are eternally unhappy with with who you are because you see the mixed motives, as I called them before. So it's a great tool to exposing the false self and therefore leaving the true self rising to the surface, if you're willing to see it, if you're willing to accept it. So very quickly, as you said, I talk about this mostly in my book immortal diamond the false self is simply who you think you are and your thinking doesn't make it so (laughs) now that sounds like good buddhist teaching doesn't it well it's good christian teaching too but the christian contemplative tradition was lost and uh that's much of the function of our school here is simply to retrieve the ancient christian contemplative tradition. And know that much that people now call Buddhism is Christian, too. But we just weren't taught it. <laughs> and Christianity once seemed to understand this much better. You know, I was just talking to a group from Oregon here this morning. They were mostly from a Catholic retreat house. And I told them, I said, you know, I'm a, uh, I have St. Paul as one of my heroes. But one thing I can never forgive him for is for using the unfortunate word, flesh, to describe what I would call the false self. In the English language, the German language, most Western languages, the Greek word sarx, when it got translated, they used a word that connoted materiality, physicality, frankly, sexuality. So we we wasted much of the first 2000 years Attacking the body self thinking that was the self that had to die Thinking that automatically the spiritual self would arise if we just punished this body That's where our whole Catholic idealization of celibacy came from uh, You know and or now we're seeing it has some good fruits, but it has a lot of bad fruits, too and now we have the eyes to recognize those kind of things Forgive me for that much historical introduction, but it sent us down a course that was fruitless, fruitless, and even counterproductive. So that's why Merton, the spiritual genius that he was, was way ahead of his time in saying, we've got to rename this. Because it, it's not the body self that has to die. It's the fictitious self, the manufactured self, the concocted self. You know what I called it in my latest class with The Living School? I called it the floating self. Because even faults, for a lot of people, connotes bad, you know. so But floating, it means it's constantly changing. You're always grabbing on to what's cool now, what works now, what sells now, particularly if you're three or living in America. It, it's a very fragile personality. Constantly, the chameleon is constantly at work. But when you're never told that there is such a thing as a true self, an ontological, metaphysical, unchangeable, anchored self, that's the new word I'm now using for the true self, the anchored self. Just using the word lately has made some people want to find that anchor because <laughs> they're, they're tired of being jerked around. By the news media, by magazines, by everything, especially in this time of social media, we're creating a more fragile self than ever. Because as Rene Girard's mimetic theory says, human beings are imitative to the core. I just got these new Dark-rimmed glasses. I've never had dark-rimmed glasses in my life. Now I can't remember, but I bet I saw someone <laughs> somewhere in dark-rimmed glasses. And he or she looked pretty good. And so, okay, next time I get glasses, I'm going to get dark-rimmed glasses. It, I'm, I mean, I'm ashamed to admit that. But I have to expose myself to help all the rest of us expose ourselves. We're all very... Uh, manipulatable, maneuverable, changeable, vacillating. We're unanchored. And that's the job of healthy religion. So the true self is who you always were and still are and always will be from the moment of your conception. Now, Paul in Colossians uses that wonderful phrase that I use a lot, hidden with Christ in God. Christ being the external manifestation of the eternal God, uh, that this Christ ministry gives us a physicality, a persona, and if you've uh, read my book on the two halves of life, you know that I also believe we've got to create the uh, floating self. That's the way you grow up. It's It works for you again for the first 25, 30 years, <laughs> and then... If you're on schedule somewhere in your early 30s, certainly by mid 40s, you start realizing, you know what, this isn't me. It's just an act. It's just a game. It's just a pretend. It's a very humiliating uh, experience. Now, this is what John of the Cross would have called the night of the senses. When your senses stop satisfying you. It isn't yet the dark night of the soul. That comes later if you, if you pass the first dark night. But most Americans aren't even told about the night of the senses. They believe the fictitious self. And, in fact, they're almost my age, and they're still dressing it up. Mm. You know, the, 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 almost the only remaining storyline in America is, if I win, I am right. If I win, I am true. Does that need much proof? after the last 18 months in this country. Winning is truth. That's a very, very (laughs) self-serving, fragile, and destructive worldview because most people aren't these big winners. So 9 out of 10 people lose. It's a a destructive non-gospel view of the world, but we're stuck with it. Mm. This is why I think the teaching of the true self, false self for many people is the foundational conversion experience.
0: Hmm. So what I hear you saying, and I, pff, that was brilliant. I, what I hear you saying is uh, something that I think is so important for people to know, which is people I hear them say, oh, I'm a six, or I'm a one, or I'm a three. And I, I, I always want to stop them and say, no, you're not.
1: Yeah, that's,
0: that's, that's just a cover story.
1: Yeah, cover um, story, that's good.
0: You know the the other the phrase that I like uh, and I love anchored self, uh, but the other one I love is James Hollis, who I think we're both fans of.
1: Um, yes. What does he say? He
0: calls it the provisional self.
1: Oh, that's good. I have used that too. I didn't know it was from him.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a lovely way of thinking. Yeah, it's good. It helps us in the beginning to uh, yeah. you know adjust to cultural norms and familiar family norms, but. But that has to be, we need to let go of the the fiction of the one, the the narrative fiction of the four or the five. That's not who you are underneath it. And I guess some teachers would use the word essence. You've used the word, we use the word true self. Uh, There is that uh, that original goodness uh, that, that we carry and that for people to realize, So the Enneagram is not just about finding your number and then now identifying with that. Now you've got another identity, right? It's actually just the first step of the journey toward dismantling it.
1: That's right. You've got to see it as provisional, as a concoction of your own self, and as too often self-serving. Although if you learn to be honest, it's also self-defeating. You think it's (laughs) self-serving. And it, because it got you this far, that's why, as I say in Falling Upward, the um, the falling experience is so essential, the the night experiences, as John of the Cross calls them, that the previous level of consciousness, the previous game you were playing, necessarily must fail you, must disappoint you, must fall apart must show its dark side. You know, when I finished watching this series on Vietnam, I said, my God, was America shown its dark side? What is it gonna take? And yet in 10 years, we if we learned anything from it, we've forgotten it, mm. yeah. So uh, that's another thing I like about the Enneagram. It not only allows us to critique individuals, but cultures and ethnicities and corporate situations. Hmm. We don't need to go down that, I just want to mention, you know, our center here is working with activists to try to get people to do the work of social justice but from a free, happy place. And uh, the Enneagram has been invaluable in helping people understand that much that they even call their social justice zeal (laughs) was actually just their personality at work. Oh, yeah. And it was often hard to accept. But when they did, they could do the same thing. But now with a much purer, more free-floating, in a good way, energy.
2: Mm.
0: So uh, I guess uh, just to wrap, because I think I'm going to ask you a question about the true self. Uh, But when we talk about the false self, just as a way to maybe put a, a wrap on it, I think right away of, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that word I is the word ego, right? Ego. Uh, So, you're talking about when Paul says that, he's not talking about annihilation or the, the... washing away of identity it really is to say i want
1: to do you a favor <laughs> very good
0: i want to get rid of that ego Is that is that kind of capturing
1: what yes. you're talking about thank you for finishing the thought i was supposed to finish before i tell people when they read paul whenever they read the word flesh just put in the word ego mm-hmm. it connotes physicality ego is an illusion but it's not bad it's just self-created and that's its fragility So um, when people can start recognizing the self that has to die, and I know we don't even like that language in our self-preservative mode, but Buddha talks about it even stronger than Jesus does. the same message. There's a self that has to die so that another self can show itself. And they all say that the self that has to die is a self you don't need anyway. You really don't need it, but you don't know it until you let go of it. Mm. And you find yourself in a bigger field now.
0: Yes. So I, I'm thinking about Jack Kornfield now, uh, who, of whom I'm, I'm a great admirer of Jack's. And I, I love how he helps people understand that uh, because there's a lot of confusion about the word ego between the world of psychology and the yeah. world of spirituality. Sure. Uh, that in the world of you know psychology, ego is a neutral term. It, it just refers to the organizing uh principle yeah. around which one's identity becomes formed, a sense of self differentiated from others, etc. Yeah. Whereas the ego in the spiritual life, and the, it, whether you're a Buddhist or a Christian or Hindu, whatever, is this false provisional adapted self that needs to go in order for that uh, true self to emerge and that it, uh, the Enneagram helps uh, to expose or, the, oh, there's that false self. That how it operates, and that's
1: what's got to go. Excellent. I couldn't have said it better.
0: Well, Richard, as you know, this is a two part episode with you, so I'm going to hit pause and pick up with part two of our conversation next week. So, Anthony. Did that episode and conversation with Richard not blow your mind? blew my mind. Yeah, I mean, he is not only like uh, an Enneagram master, but really, at least in my life, he has been a, a spiritual hero and just a fount of wisdom.
2: Well, that makes sense because I feel saturated. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, I mean, wow, I love this podcast with Richard, and I, I particularly love his whole perspective on holy identity being hidden with christ and god Mm. and just the way he gives you permission to be on the path to becoming
0: Mm. like it was okay to be who you are but also to want and to pursue becoming yes who you truly are and uh a more what's the word i'm looking
2: for inspired me to find my true self
0: exactly inspired you to find your your true self
2: but to be okay with the false self too in what sense? Well, when I say be okay, I mean it's a necessary part of the process. Right. It's a part of what you have to grow through to becoming the real you.
0: Mm, right. And then as you get older, it's like what James says, right, in, in the scriptures, right? He says, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I, I acted like a child. But when I became an adult, I gave up childish things. And so I think shedding or dismantling that false self is part of the journey toward becoming a spiritual adult.
2: Yes, so good.
0: Right? Oh my gosh, so rich. Well, it's so rich. That conversation was so good, mm-hmm. in fact, that we're gonna pick up part two of that conversation next week. Woo-hoo! This is a double header.
2: Yes. And Ian, let's not forget to mention the Patreon campaign. Oh, right, our Patreon campaign. Tell us about it. Yeah, man. So if you aren't familiar with it, Patreon
0: is Mm -hmm. a way for you to support content you love like typology on a monthly basis for as a little – As a dollar a month. Did you hear
2: me, Anthony? A dollar a month. I'm sorry, Ian, what were you saying? I'm on uh, patreon.com contributing to Typology. (laughs) (laughs) Good.
0: (laughs) For as little as a dollar a month, you can partner with us to help us cover the costs for stuff like equipment upgrades, studio time, post-production editing, the fees to license our music, and all the other stuff it takes for us to produce each episode of Typology. All you have to do is go to www.patreon.com forward slash typology. That's P A T R E O N dot com forward slash T Y P O L O G Y and select the level at which you want to support the show. And you not only will receive our undying love and gratitude, you're going to get a bunch of great bonus content as well. Even a dollar a month, folks, is a huge help. Well, that's all I have for today. If you enjoyed today's show or have suggestions for future episodes and guests, I'd love to hear from you. Go to our website, typologypodcast.com and submit a question or comment. And now, until next week, remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everybody else is already taken.